What would people say About this life I choose What would people say If I asked them to What's up everyone? Welcome to People Say, a podcast where I unpack the challenges of launching a career in a creative field. Our next guest is a major label recording artist who is signed to Virgin EMI. To date, he has released two full-length records yielding hundreds of millions of streams. Yes, you heard that correctly. He is an absolute beast. He has opened for artists including The Who, The Libertines, Ed Sheeran, The Lumineers, Tom O'Dell, and Fits in the Tantrums. He has performed on Conan and The Late Late Show with James Corden. You've heard his music in countless shows and movies including Burnt, The Founder, We the Marines, Cloak and Dagger, and many, many others. Please welcome to the podcast, my friend, Barnes Courtney. Dude, that was an intro and a half. You made me sound like such a fancy man. Dude, I made you sound like the celebrity that you are. Why is no one applauding for me yet? I'm getting really uncomfortable. It's been like over 10 minutes and I haven't had any adulations. (laughs) There's no one here. (laughs) (laughs) I missed you, man. It's good to have you. You're a tough man to pin down, so I'm I'm pumped you were able to make some time. Oh, I felt terrible. We We had our arrangements all set up and then my train was delayed by about two hours and uh i wasn't anywhere near a wi-fi connection when we were meant to be talking so thank you for rescheduling oh it's my pleasure it's it's an honor to have you man so we're gonna dive in we're gonna get your story from the jump you were born in england you were born let's start with that you were born (laughs) they say i was i was born yeah yes in england yes correct tell me about that Oh, well, um, I believe that I was conceived on Valentine's Day because apparently, according to Uberfax, if you were born in November, that is that is the likelihood. So thank you for reminding me when it was that my parents were boning. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so you were born in England, but you didn't grow up there. No. Um, I, well, I spent a few formative years in England, like from the age of zero to four, I believe. And then my parents divorced and I was flown halfway across the world to Seattle, which is where I spent my youth from five to 14. Amazing. In Seattle. And that must have been an interesting growing up experience I don't know if at the time this registered with you, but obviously there's loads of music history, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, even Jimi Hendrix, I think was born and raised in Seattle. Did that impact your childhood at all or you had no idea? Yeah, it was just floating around in the background. I mean, there was a lot of mention of those bands, but I was like completely oblivious. I just wanted to play Pokemon and like, you know, go to the movies and paint Warhammer like just do like nerdy kid stuff. So were you living with your your mom in Seattle? Yeah, my mom and my my stepdad. Yeah, so man, I just I, I was completely oblivious to Nirvana until I moved to England, ironically. And then everyone was like, "Whoa, you're from Seattle? You must love Nirvana." And I started listening to um those guys. Nevermind was the first album that I got seriously into and i listened to that album every day for about 18 months just like obsessively pouring over it because it was just i don't know there was something about the way that 
Kurt Cobain could electrify my teenage bones with the word yeah and some balls in songs like Lithium that just really blew me away. And now how old were you when you were listening to Nirvana? Like 14 was when I really got it. And I used to listen to that band every day on the way to school. And just as uh, Lithium came on, on the record, I'd be passing this pub called the Railway Pub, which at the time was like the pinnacle of accomplishment. If I could just get a gig at the Railway Pub, my life would change and transform. Yeah. Well, I did play there, actually. I was going to say I didn't, but I did. So that was in back in England or in Seattle? That was in the town of Ipswich in England. So, yeah, I just want to get some uh, geography, Barnes history here. So you're born in England. You then move to Seattle. You grow up in Seattle until you're about what age? Mm, 14. And then I'm like, you know what? Like my stepdad was a very, very uh, like aggressive sort of cantankerous dude. You know, he, I think he might have been bipolar. We, we don't really know. But I just, you know, I came to visit my dad on holiday and I was like, I can't handle this anymore. I got to get out of here. So, you know, I was just like, I can't go back. And from that point onwards, I just started going to school in England. Did that affect your childhood much? Did it affect your love of music? Oh, man, ab- absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that some of my heroes, especially when you think of people who uh, entered into the 27 Club, like, you know, the greats like Amy Whitehouse and Kurt Cobain and Hendrix, who you, who you mentioned, these people were all dealing with huge amounts of pain and trauma. And it is my belief that their ability to transmute this enormous amount of hurt into their music is part of what gave them the superpowers to create such incredible and lasting pieces of music. Sometimes I wonder how my records would be if I was a little bit more fucked up. (laughs) Because I really believe that, that these people, you know, who I idolized, like Jim Morrison, to name another 27 Club member, perhaps they succumbed early because when their talent for transmuting their pain acquired fame and notoriety for them, they realized that that wasn't the cure. And, you know, they they started to self-medicate with drugs. And I mean, I've, I've, I've experienced a very small level of fame, and even I know that it can be extremely isolating. And it's it's something that does not bring you happiness. It's a very hollow feeling. Because how how can you love and appreciate your fellow humans when they put you on a pedestal? There's, there's no way to accept that love. You can't have real relationships, real nurturing relationships with people. So um, to get back to, to my stepdad and your question, did he... Did, to the effect, my love of music and you know the way that I interact with music, I think so. I think that being in that environment uh, certainly taught me to transform my feelings into creativity. So your relationship with your stepdad gave you the darkness that maybe inspired you to become a musician. Am I correct in saying that? I really, I really think so. You know, the French they don't send kids with ADHD to the doctor to prescribe them medicine kids who have symptoms uh like the ones that i had when i was growing up with my stepdad adhd symptoms they have decided that they need to go to therapy because they say that it's unrest in a child's family life that creates 
these kinds of, uh, of behaviors. So there's something in the way that I reacted to that trauma that caused me to push all that pain outwards into something that could entertain, you know? Was it always music? Was music always that outlet for you? Or I know you mentioned Pokemon. That seems maybe when you were a little bit younger, but was it always, was music your immediate release for that energy? I wanted to be an actor. I loved to make people laugh and entertain. And that goes hand in hand with what I was saying. I mean, one of the greatest comedic actors of all time, you know, Robin Williams was terribly depressed. And and I was so sad when he took his life. And he w- would say, wouldn't he, in interviews, he never wanted anybody to feel the way that he felt. And that was part of his drive to entertain and make people laugh. And, you know, maybe there was some of that going on with me. So, you know, I was just always like trying to entertain my my classmates at school. And, and I, w- I definitely wanted to do something like that with my life from the beginning. The music was kind of an accident. What prompted the music? Did you hear a certain artist? When I left America and started to go to school in England. It was one of the most culturally deprived areas in the entire county. I could only get into that school because I came in halfway through the school year. Suddenly, nobody gave a shit about my grades anymore. People were worried about the kid trying to burn down the school gym. So I could just get away with like doing whatever I wanted. The school didn't have enough money for a drama department. There were no school plays. But the first friends that I made were in a band. And I kind of saw being the front man of that band as like playing a character. And then it was through that that I kind of accidentally fell in love with with music and realized that uh, aside from trying to make people laugh, the music was was a great catharsis. Yeah, I see I see that even from an outs- an outsider looking in, knowing you as I do. You you seem like an actor when you're performing on stage. Like that comes across to me. So that's it's interesting to hear the origin of that. As you did, you actually wanted to be an actor. And this just by happenstance of meeting friends in a band put you on a separate path into music. What were you guys, were you guys hanging out with each other every day, you know, playing music, trying to go for it? Or, or is it much more fun, carefree, no aspiration to do it professionally? I was 14 years old. But, you know, it's, my entire life, I kind of decided that I had to do something in, in entertainment in some way, just just because it just felt like such a natural thing for me. And I, I realized very early on that I'd be very depressed if I didn't do something in that area. So less willpower, more more necessity. And these guys that I met every day, you know, every lunch break or a break between classes, we'd go up to the music room, we would beg the teacher to open up the cupboard with all the guitars in it, and then we would sit and jam. And I didn't play guitar when I first moved over here. So I would watch them playing together. And I was like, wow, this is great. This is an outlet for my performance. And I used to try and sing with those guys. Yes, yeah, slowly kind of organically morphed into this band um, called Sleeper Cell. And I mean, God, man, we were so awful. We were so bad. <laughs> So at this time, do you feel like your parents were encouraging this music outlet? My mom has always just been like hell for leather. Like you are a performer and an extrovert and this is what you were born to do. And I mean, she is an incredible woman and we have such a wonderful connection I said to her, I called her up last night when I was really drunk. So you might be able to tell I'm incredibly hungover. <laughs> and I was just like, I was like, mom, 
I swear to God, I've known you in like a thousand past lives. Like, you know, <laughs> and you know, I was like, how, how do we have this relationship? And, uh, despite my incredible intoxication, she agreed and was like, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I feel the same. So, you know, she, she just really taught me that it was okay to be who I am and bolstered that, you know? And, and in fact, you know, my friends would say when I went to visit my mom, when I moved away uh, to get away from my stepdad and I'd come back to England, they would say like, wow, you, you seem much more yourself. You have a really strong sense of self, you know? So in a way I, re- I regret leaving that environment because the two of us together, we, we were just so nurturing of each other's basic personality traits so that was great i had nothing but support from her my my dad and stepmom were completely the opposite you know my stepmom is from a sort of like very hard working like working class family and she moved out at a very young age and they got a job and got a house and um you know so they they were freaking out thinking that i was gonna end up trying to live with them until i was like 30 so yeah you know um i kind of had both sides simultaneously did it really make you sad in a way that your your dad did not give you the support that your mom did? Because at this time, you're living with your dad. So while your mom does support you, the the primary force it would seem like was not encouraging this in you. I think it was far too. I think it was far too late. I think my mom instilled something in me. It was it was incredible. I mean, it makes me well up just to think about it. Like uh, I owe I owe so much to that lady. They, she she gave me a magic bullet. She gave me a superpower in the form of just like incredible, powerful, like gut wrenching naivety. Of course, of course, I'm gonna be an entertainer. Of course, I am. That's what I was made to do. That was that's what I was born to be. And and that stayed with me until I was like fucking 26 or 27 like that was i mean it took me a long time to sort of like wake up to the real world and be like oh fuck like absolutely none of this was guaranteed and like (laughs) there's like a shit ton of talented people out there and like you know like people work so hard for this and like oh oh my god like I just remember waking up one day and being like, wow, I, I can't believe that I just completely threw everything into this, <laughs> like without thinking about the consequences. Cause I, I, I kind of wonder if for a second I understood the enormity of the task that I was striving for. If I would have had the balls to, to really go all in and put all my chips on me. But that lady brainwashed, she, she brainwashed me into believing that I can do it. So you're saying that you put all your chips into music subconsciously. You never made a conscious choice to be to say to yourself, I'm going all in. Yeah, it was just something I had to do. It was just so deeply in, ingrained in me to be an entertainer. And and to be honest, I think I think my true calling was more on the acting side of things. So with music, you know, I never really got deep into learning my instrument because I, I used to think to myself, well, I'm a performer, you know? Yeah, I get up there on the stage, I'm playing the role of the front man. And I would write songs because it was how I would let go of of traumas of how I would express myself and and uh, and fix myself, you know, catharsis. But I was never studiously working on any of that stuff like a lot of my friends do. So, I mean, even to this day, as, as a successful recording artist, 
and I'm very grateful and lucky that it's my job. You know, I still feel like, wow, you know, I, I don't know as, as much as I should about the guitar. I can barely, I can barely play my instrument and I'm just like, well, shit. It's definitely that imposter syndrome where like just waiting for somebody to be like, wait a minute, this guy doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. What are you doing here? That's really interesting to hear that you feel that way because from the outside, myself as a musician and also other people I know, everyone's like, oh, Barnes Courtney, wow, such a great voice, such a great guitar player, such a great songwriter. So it's interesting that that's how you view yourself. Well, I mean, that's the, the business that we're in is the business of illusion. I mean, everybody secretly knows when I go up there and perform that I'm not a deity or a, or a space alien, but it's my job to suspend disbelief, just like it's the cinematographer's job to make you believe that that guy's really being chased by a werewolf, you know, and get your heartbeat racing. Like, yeah, yeah. That's what they come for. And in the early days, I used to try and, and tear that down. Because I wanted that connection with people. I'd, I'd come off stage and I, w I would tell people, you know, I'm exactly the same as you, right? Like, you know, you could you could do that if you wanted to. Like, if you put the time in, there's no, we're no different. And people visibly become crestfallen and like sad. They don't want to hear it. Like, they, they came to a magic show to see magic. Like, don't, I realized like you, you ruin it by telling them how the card tricks work. It's better you just, just let them believe. Yeah. They know deep down they know they don't want to be told yeah, i think you're right about that and it's amazing to hear how you approach the craft in that sort of way so i want to take that and backtrack to sleeper cell and dig in a bit to how that band formed how you took some of that energy did you learn that in sleeper cell was that where you got that actor like drive to entertain that's where that was fostered i'm getting the sense i just remember like seeing all the bands around me at, at 14, 15, 16, like with people, you know, singing with their hoods up and singing on nervously and kind of thinking that that was okay because that's what my peers were doing. And I played a couple gigs like that. You know, I played a couple gigs where I was like, felt comfortable being nervous, which is a bit of an oxymoron, but felt like that wasn't a, such a big deal for a front man to be, to be a nervous looking performer. Yeah, I just remember I'm playing this gig at the Steamboat tavern and i just remember one day performing the set in this very nervous stunted fashion and thinking like wait a minute i'm i'm gonna be an actor and i believed i was i'm 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 an act if I, if i'm an actor then i need to be able to play any part and i'm playing the part of a front man like i i just gotta be able to nail this immediately and everything changed after that point i just like 10x every performance Sick. like and I remember watching myself back and realizing, for me personally, every movement I made on stage felt like 10 times less than it looked. And just making the performances bigger and bigger and bigger, you know? And I, I started to, to develop the mentality that, like, the performance was everything. And, like, even if I was singing out of tune or, like, <laughs> kind of breathless, like, it didn't matter as long as, as long as it looked good and it was exciting and the crowd was going. Of course, now I realize that it's all important, but... My my passion for bands and music definitely was born in the physical live aspect of it. Well, I think that even you hear interviews with Jim Morrison and other you know legendary frontmen, and I think they actually take a very similar approach to that. And it's very, I think, wise beyond your years to be. You, you were fifteen at this point, sixteen. Yeah, I think I was about about sixteen, maybe fifteen. So to be sixteen and to to have this you know, alter ego and persona being a front man of a rock band where you know it's about the performance. I think that's a really mature view. 
I don't think I think most people take ten years to figure that out as a rock and roll frontman. Well, I thought it was interesting. I took a little little acting coaching recently because I had a, an audition for a TV show out in LA, and I thought it was interesting to note the parallels between what this coach was telling me about how to access your acting abilities and the process of being on stage. She talks about like you're not really acting. Your her, her methodology, I can't remember what it's called. You access real parts of yourself and you try and bring them to the surface and then attach them to what you're doing. And I guess I just figured out how to do that. You know, when it's a good show, I'm I'm not lying. Like I'm not pretending to be somebody else. I'm recalling things that are that are real and then choosing which parts of myself to project enormously towards the I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's a, in a lot of ways, I think the grand illusion that we both purport when we go on stage is that actually we're just holding a mirror. You know, we're we're taking the energy of a thousand people in a room and we're holding a mirror and bouncing back every single person from one point which creates the illusion that we have all that energy you know that's beautiful man i dig that well i mean sometimes you know they the crowd comes and they're dead so to create that feedback loop you have to put in all the energy yourself and then you know you get that fire started on the crowd side and that's when you can start recycling it back but i do think that's it's that uh, there's something in that that push and pull of reflecting the feelings of an entire crowd of people from one point that can sort of deify a person on a stage yeah i i agree with you and so let's i want to i'm going to recap a bit because it seems like this is the moment in your career where things start to come together in some way. So you you grow up in Seattle, you know, you have a kind of a, a troubled childhood, but you get in, instills this energy in you to let it out as an actor. You move across the pond to Ipswich and you form a band with your mates called Sleeper Cell. And then you become this front man, you take on this persona. And then at some point, if if I'm correct, you get signed, right? Not with Sleeper Cell. Not with Sleeper Cell. We, um, I mean, we were, we were pretty awful and I, I couldn't even sing that well back then. I, I knew that I liked to ham it up in every regard of my life, but I was going out wearing like my great grandmother's blouse and like, you know, a pair of like elasticated fucking striped skinny jeans. And, you know, it was just like, <laughs> looked ridiculous. Um, and, you know, the songs were terrible and I didn't know I could write songs back then because, uh, the band didn't use anything that I wrote on principle. Why was that? There, there was a lot of a lot of tension between me and the guitarist. I mean, Sleeper Cell was kind of a, a, a band already before I moved into town, and then I think for whatever reason they decided they wanted me to join. But suddenly, the the guitarist wasn't the center of the show anymore. And I guess, like you know, our music was pretty terrible, and like my singing wasn't great. But people used to come to the shows because I would like jump around and sweat so much, and it was kind of ridiculous. But you know, you, you couldn't deny that it was also entertaining, <laughs> even if it wasn't technically good, if that makes sense. <laughs> so, right, you know, they, they, and most of the time they wouldn't let me sing the lead vocal either. So I, I really developed my ability to harmonize in that band because if I was going to sing, it had to be a harmony of. Uh, what the guitarist was singing. So did you have motivation then after that to form your next band, Dive Bella Dive? You were like, okay, I'm tired of being the second fiddle. I want to be a proper front man, be a singer, you know, hone my craft. At what point did you decide to leave that band and then venture into your next project? Well, Sleeper Cell auditioned to be in this uh, televised battle of the bands in England, kind of like uh, 
America's Got Talent specifically for bands um, with famous judges, you know, like Alex Zane from the band Blur and then like uh, Simon Gavin, who is the head of a, a major record label back then. And, and uh, it, somehow we, we got on the show. I don't know, maybe because we were, we were young or something. And right off the bat, I mean, it just it just ramped up all the tension that had previously existed because the judges immediately started saying like, well, this guy, you know, Barnes, he has all the talent and you guys kind of suck. So like the whole show should be about him. And then we'd be like in the van <laughs> driving home from London for like three hours, just sort of like, oh, shit, <laughs> this is really awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if they didn't already hate me enough and try to keep me in the back enough, it like just it made it that much worse. And, uh, you know, I never wanted to hear that. I, I loved being in the band. I never actually wanted to be a solo artist. I really, really loved the, the camaraderie. So at what point did, did that experience, I mean, I could see the, the natural tension that that must have created. And they made it even worse, Ben, because what they did to dramatize the show was they would edit all of the behind the scenes stuff of us talking about what the next song was, what the next move was to make it seem like I was always right. Like more than I actually was. <laughs> so it was like even, and they, they edited the show wow. to make it look like the guitar player was, was kind of a dick. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's like, it's so, it's so awful. Cause you think we were like teenage kids you know, you know how insecure teenagers are. Like they just made it so awful for this poor guy. You know, so it's like suddenly I became this like pariah, and and yeah, I mean it, it it got really bad. And then from that TV show, I I got a message on MySpace because it was forever ago, and MySpace was still a thing. And it was from the manager of of uh, these like really famous boy bands. Um, and he was like, hey, I manage this band, uh, McFly. Like, I think you're really good. Can I, can I get on the phone and have a chat with you? And I thought it was somebody making fun of me because I was trying to be in a rock and roll band. I thought it was someone making fun of me. Like, oh, you should be in a boy band. You suck. Like, I'm pretending to be this manager. So I was going to send him a really rude message back. <laughs> and then my dad luckily happened to be in the room and was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just in case it is actually the real deal. Why don't you send a nice message back? And it turned out, it was totally the real deal. So, you know, this guy like came in and, uh, and snapped me up. And this is the time when MySpace had like a top eight friends list. So I was looking through his top eight friends and like, I started talking to some of the other acts and making friends and we formed a band. And that is how I met the other members of, uh, dive belly dive. And that was from what I understand, the real moment where your career started to, to kind of take shape. I mean, it, it was, it, it was pretty, it was pretty great. You know, I'd, I'd spent my entire teenage years from the age of 14 playing gigs as often as I could. We never turned a single one down. So most weekends I was playing gigs. I didn't, I never got a job much to my parents' chagrin. And I just put all the money from the gigs back into the band. I'm, I'm kind of still doing that now. And then I got signed with this manager and my parents at the time, they were trying to get me to sign up to welfare. And, you know, like they were <laughs> making me like, you know, <laughs> apply for a job. How old were you? I think I was... Uh, 18. I was 17 when the pro show started in 18 when I came out of it. Um, and then one day they got a call from my manager like, Barnaby can't work. He needs to focus on his music. He doesn't have time to work in a call center. <laughs> it was like the most vindicated, like, yeah, <laughs> take that, <laughs> you dicks. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, like from then on, 
I just remember going to London all wide-eyed and he was living in this hotel called the Royal Garden. And we, he would just put us up in this hotel for like weeks at a time. Oh, sick. And we'd be like, you know, making all... I mean, this is this this is the same time that he was managing the Struts as well. Me and the Struts were on the same management. So, you know, like we used to hang out with the Struts and we'd like go into each other's hotel rooms. I remember once we put a sock over the fire alarm and we took the, the ice bucket for the wine and... They they used to give you free hand sanitizer in every room as like part of the welcome package. So we put all the hand sanitizer into the ice bucket and we made this huge like Olympic flame in the middle of the hotel room. <laughs> and we You and the struts. We, yeah, yeah. And then we, we sat around it in a circle, uh like playing songs and singing. I mean it was <laughs> I just can't believe that the kind of stuff that went on. I mean, we just like had free reign to this hotel for five star hotel for weeks and weeks. And like, you know, we, <laughs> were you making a record or what, what were you doing at the hotel? No, we were just like hanging out. I mean, weirdly, this was probably one of the best lessons I ever had in songwriting because our manager, Richard Rashman from prestige, who was um, an amazing manager would get us in, every day and be like, okay, what have you written today? And we'd play him everything we'd written. And he'd say, okay, that, that doesn't have a chorus. That sucks. Like combine this song with that song. And it kind of taught me through trial and error, like the good parts of my songwriting and how to put a song together. Um, I mean, not a lot of managers can do that. Not a lot of managers have the ears to hear something in fragmented parts and be able to tell you how to put it together. Most people who work that side of the industry uh, have a cross between business and creative genes. So they can't really hear something until it's more a finished product, at least a demo. It sounds like, well, that is, that's really, it is an, an impressive skill. And, and it's also an impressive skill on your part to take that kind of advice and criticism without being defensive about it. Cause dude, I was super defensive about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? It doesn't have a chorus. Like I just sent you the chorus It's right there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know he put together like a bunch of boy bands and he, he had this amazing niche that he carved out for himself where he would wait until boy bands were going out of fashion and guitar bands were coming in because everything repeats itself in cycles and then he would plug the gap with a boy band that played their own guitars and wrote their own songs um and it worked every time and then he would break the next boy band off the previous one by putting them on tour with the bigger one. I see. And so were you, so Dive Bella Dive was by this guy's perspective, this manager's perspective, a boy band that he was hoping to break as one of the boy bands. Yeah, totally. But, uh, from what I've seen of, of Dive Bella Dive, you, you guys seem like a rock and roll band. There's no boy band elements in it at all. That was such a weird experience, man, because um, when we signed, we had all these super like electronic pop songs. And we signed a joint contract with Lady Gaga's producer, Red One, and Island Records. And something must have happened between Island and Red One because we went to LA and we recorded our whole album and finished it. And then the album never made it to the record label. And we waited for that album for three years and it never made it over. So can we unpack the, the getting signed portion? Because I think for a lot of people listening, the idea of getting signed is, is a huge, huge feat. And it's super impressive. Like, it, it, but it also, I get the sense that you kind of were flying by the seat of your pants, like not thinking too hard about it, not dramatizing it, just kind of enjoying the ride. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it felt, it was a very emotional ride for me, especially in the early days, because I was somebody who never did well in school. I was always that kid. I was too distracted. I was too full of energy, like trying to make people laugh. It was just part of my DNA. Like I was always trying to perform all the time and I always felt out of place and like I wasn't good enough and didn't belong uh, because my personality was not a valid personality and my skills weren't valid skills in the world of academia. In my first school that I went to in America was an extremely like rich school, like posh school that Bill Gates sent his daughter to. And like, they didn't even believe in a drama or music department. So there was like zero outlet. I genuinely thought as a nine-year-old kid that I would probably grow up to be homeless and like live in a box. Nothing that I had to bring to the table was seen as a positive trait. It was all like, we got to iron this out of this kid and get him focused on, you know, his math and science. And so I found it very difficult. And then to suddenly be in this position where I'm staying in this hotel and I'm signed to a record label and Lady Gaga's producers calling me up on the telephone, like, oh, you're going to be a, a huge star. Like it, it brought me to tears because I just felt like maybe I'm going to be okay. You know, like I had this like simultaneous thing. My mom gave me the naivety and belief that I guess the, the strength to know myself to the point where I'm like, I know that this is what I am and this is what I had to do. But then I had the simultaneous influence from my entire school life telling me that that wasn't okay. So, it, you know, it was conflicting and, and it was just, a, it was a beautiful moment to think that, uh, that I was on the right path, but that was very short lived. It's a lot of emotional baggage to carry as such a young, you, you're eight, you got signed, you were 18, 19. I just, just turned 19. I signed management when I was 18 and then just turned 19 when I signed my first deal. I, well, that in and of itself is super impressive, but to, to know that you were carrying such emotional baggage at that, at that age, even as a nine-year-old that you thought you may be homeless and to, to get some success felt some, some kind of wrong is must've been super challenging for you. I mean, what a, what a crazy tumultuous journey you were on yeah yeah but that's that goes back to what i was saying i think like being kind of fucked up is a positive boom in this industry that's that's why you see so many people in rehab because the fame does not bring them the love and support that they really crave and they try and self-medicate and and end up going off the rails so, you know, I, I did, yeah, I was carrying a lot with me for sure. And it, what made it even worse was that I, I'd never worked on something so hard in my life was working on that album. And then it just never appeared. And, and I was getting these calls from Lady Gaga's producer like every couple of weeks. And he would speak to me for like three hours at a time. Like he was real intense, like, you know, telling me I was going to be a huge star. And I was young and like naive. And I, I believed him. I was like, okay, yeah, amazing. And, uh, my manager would constantly say, yeah, no, no, don't, don't go anywhere because any minute now your, your album is going to be delivered to the record label and you're going to be super busy. You're going to be flying all over the world. You're going to be playing all these gigs, you know, like supporting huge bands and, you know, ramping up to being famous. And the record label would tell us now, boys, enjoy this time of silence because you're going to be so busy. You're going to be doing nothing but radio interviews and, you know, liners and, I was I was ready, you know, and and this went on for three years, just like living in suspended animation, and all my friends were like, you know, getting on with their lives and go to university or getting jobs. <laughs> I was just like sort of waiting. And don't get me wrong, it was like it was super fun in, in a way, right? Because we were three teenage kids. The label paid for a house, like you know, paid for all our bills, paid for 
the food. So we were just like having parties all the time. And I was just like playing video games all the time and making music. And I was just like, this is fucking awesome. Like, holy shit. Like my life is just like, I don't have to get a fucking job. I'm just making tunes and playing Elder Scrolls, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) but you know, it became like a pressure cooker that house because we're growth seeking beings as humans. We need to feel like we're moving towards something to be happy. And it just was, it was stagnating. And as the months turned into years and nothing was happening, it just got real dark and we got real depressed. And and the partying became dark in and of itself, because if I wasn't throwing a party, then the bass player was. And if he wasn't, the guitar player was. So the house was just always like disgusting. It was always (laughs) full of people. We started to go off the rails. I mean, like, my, the guitar player Sam, who's now looking on no computer, he—I remember once he threw a big kitchen knife at me. You know, the big long ones you used to like cut meats with. Because I said I like John Mayer. <laughs> wow! Holy crap! <laughs> right, he's fucking awesome. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, it was just crazy. It was really crazy. So what happened at the end? So you—you you, you obviously get signed. They shelved the record. Did you, they just dropped you? Is that the end of the band or what, what, what went on? I mean, the crazy thing is it wasn't even shelved in the classic way. And I've, I've digressed a bit to answer your question about the rock band element. We signed as a pop band. And then over the course of three years with nothing to do, uh, we wrote about five albums together and, and naturally progressed over a three-year career in silence in the shadows from an electro pop band to kind of like a killer's band to a rock band to like a proper rock band all without ever having an official release and and after like two and a half years we got bored and we just started releasing like our own homemade demos with like homemade music videos so you can see like the music video to to animal we just had a, a normal night in our house it's like a house party got somebody to film it like played in the corner you know that's why we emerged out the other side as, as a rock band but yeah, I mean, the album wasn't even shelved. It was just like the producer refused to deliver it to the label. And we we were under contract with him as much as we were with Island. So we couldn't reproduce anywhere else. Gotcha. Wow. That's hard. One day the record label was just like, guys, we're just hemorrhaging money, paying for you to live um, in this house. And we have no music and it's been three years. So like, sorry, but you're done. Like it's over. You dropped. I mean, Jeez. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, man, I, I, I'd known nothing but an upward trajectory ever since I got into music. You know, when I was fourteen, we were playing really shitty gigs, and it went from school concerts to like winning the school talent show to playing real venues to getting on TV and playing that televised battle of bands to getting my manager. You know, hanging out with the struts in the hotel room who were, you know, also in in their early days. Going to L.A., recording the record. Like, from 14 to 19 to 22 feels like a long time. That's a short space of years, the older you get, right? But it it felt like an epoch of time. And for the first time ever, I knew real debilitating failure. And I'd never had to deal with that before. And I that was hard. And I, I didn't have... A degree from a university. Like, at least if you go to university and you lose your job, you still have that piece of paper that says, Hey, I'm I'm worth something. Like I worked really hard and like I accomplished something. When you sign a record deal and get dropped, like you may as well have just been fucking around for 
your entire life. Nobody looks at you like, yeah, but he signed a record deal. And they're all like, okay, so when are you going to like grow up and get a job? Like, okay, so what? You know, <laughs> I mean, I remember getting this job selling laptops and, and this lady asked me, so what were you doing before this? And I told her about getting signed and she was like, oh yeah, okay, so cool. Like my, um, like my cousin, yeah, he's in a band. He's playing in the, in the pub down the road. And I'm like, no, but <laughs> it's not the same though. But like, I, I really could have done it. She's like, yeah, cool. No, I get it. You know, it's just everybody just looked at me like this fuck up. Um, and I felt like a fuck up. And it was just, it was just so heavy. And like, I, I remember I had all these like extravagant, like weird clothes that I bought for when we would eventually go on tour. And I just remember like leaving them all on the side of the road because I didn't have a house to go to. And I was like having to move in with friends and sofa surf and just like having to leave them on the side of the road. It's like such an, an emotive death of a dream moment. Wow. Holy crap. Yeah. We had this, this police riot van that we bought from, um, <laughs> we had a police riot van we used to drive around in that we bought from eBay. And it was a real police riot van that they had sold to the set of Doctor Who because it was so fucked and they couldn't use it anymore. And then Doctor Who had sold it to us because it was so fucked. And they were like, now we definitely can't use it anymore. So there was some legal loophole where it still had all the police colors on the side and like said police and had the cage in the back for the criminals. Like, <laughs> it was awesome. And this thing, like the, the floor was full of holes and like the guitar player used to piss through the holes and then <laughs> the wind from the highway would like blow the smell up. And I'm like, oh, Sam, come on, dude. Oh, you can't fucking smell it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was awesome. And then I, I just remember we got dropped and like, you know, Sam had to paint over all the police signs and over all the dive bella dive graffiti and he had to sell a van it was it was just so like oh my god there was so much symbolism of like the dream is dead it's over you're you're done did you think at that moment that your career was over were you like i'm screwed i wasn't even allowed to have proper closure because the label dropped us but we still had the the album that was recorded and paid for somewhere in the world and it wasn't shelved and we still had our manager and our manager was saying well they didn't even give it a chance they didn't even put it out because they didn't have it so i'll get you signed up somewhere else we'll put it out and it just kind of like those three and what became three years and like six months four years of my life was just one like giant progressively slower vehicle where the brakes were just kind of gradually so instead of a, a clean cut where you rip the bandaid off, it was just like someone pulling it millimeter by millimeter. Um, and until eventually, uh, I just woke up one day and we left our manager for a different manager who turned out to be full of shit. And then the band had split up because the other members moved in with their parents because they couldn't afford to live in London anymore. And I didn't have a job and I was like sofa surfing and refusing to get a nine to five because it felt like giving up. And I was just like, wow, I am a loser and my life is, <laughs> is done. Is this the lowest moment of your career, you'd say? I, I guess it I guess it was, yeah. And it, and it got progressively worse and worse as the years went on. Because at first you can kind of convince yourself, well, I'll get picked up, I'll get something. And then once you've been dropped for three years and you haven't... I had had no musical success for three years, like nothing, not even like a hint of something it was like so done and everybody was done working with me and i just, i just had nothing that that's when it really struck me so so hard and i started to get to the point where that seemingly indomitable passion for music that i thought was an intrinsic part of who i am at the core of my being 
was starting to fade away. And then that was really scary because I started wondering who, who am I, if I don't have that, like it started to make me lose my sense of identity that my mom had so lovingly crafted for me at an early age. And that was, that was hard. I mean, I think the lowest point was when I went to get some prescription glasses and like I had to write salesman under occupation because I was like handing out free samples of Lipton's iced tea at a muscle suit and Crocs. I had to say the slogan so many times I lost my voice. Lipton's iced tea, serve it up sunshine. Lipton's iced tea, serve it up sunshine. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> so what, what motivated you to keep going? Like why not just, you know, cash in your chips and do something else? I, I suppose it's because I was so utterly, deeply, truly, profoundly depressed do, doing anything other than that. So I, I would say it's probably less to do with willpower and more to do with just being so like despondent and down and out without music or entertainment in my life, without being able to perform. It, it was killing me. It would have. It would have killed me. I couldn't exist like that. Well, I think that's the ultimate form of willpower. That's how every great and any successful artist feels. If you can do something else, like you'll probably not make it because there are so many other people who feel just as you feel or as I feel, which is that what is life without the music? If you if you could do something else, it's surely easier than doing this. I, I probably I probably would have done if I could have done something else. I probably would have. Yeah. Cause it was it was just so shit. And it's just so shit. And all my friends, like, you know, looking at me, like, dude, even my girlfriend at the time, you know, I was like, baby, when do you think you're going to give this music thing up and get a real job? Because it'd be nice to have some money. Wow. <laughs> so you obviously at some point made some kind of determination that you were going to chart a different course. Did you decide at this moment to become a solo artist or what happened exactly? I think hitting rock bottom uh, evoked something very primal and very strong within me. It, it gave me a wonderful gift because it made me even more fucked up than I already was, <laughs> you know? And I was so fucked up and I was so hurt and, and depressed and full of like bitterness and, and defiance for my circumstances that I had a whole lot of shit to write about. And, and when you feel like that, your songwriting can never be wrong. I think I think now if if I were to write a song and I came up with the lyrics, Lord give me that fire, I'd be like, those are the lamest lyrics ever. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? But because I was in it, I would have said to you, Yeah, yeah, like Lord give me that fire. The fire inside my gut that was burning a hole in my stomach that that made me who I am, that made my music is burning out and I don't have it anymore. And it's, it's like I don't know who I am. And I'm like on my last legs and I'm, I'm literally praying to a God that I wasn't even sure if I believed in Lord, give me that fire, like give it back, please. So I couldn't be wrong. The lines couldn't be cheesy because I meant them. And suddenly all of the last three years, heartache and hurt. Like when I really hit rock bottom, they all crystallized into something that I could use and it, it became fuel. And suddenly, you know, like, I, I remember to skip ahead a little bit when I was trying to get a record deal and I had management like playing to a label boss in a cafe, like a crowded hipster cafe in Shoreditch. Cause I, I didn't give a fuck. I was like, I don't 
care like what these people think of me and like how lame and embarrassing it is to just like be some random kid but it, and it was so inappropriate it was like a really high-end cafe everyone's all dressed up to the nines you know and i was like playing my heart out for one person and it was like shaking and like quivering and like fucking i, I was leaving my guts out for this one dude who was like probably gonna forget about me tomorrow because i had so much baggage and then that was very very powerful and it it delivered me where I need to go. And I, I'll say it as well to, to skip ahead a little bit more and we can go back, but I actually find it incredibly difficult now on album three to write about something meaningful and, and feel genuine inspiration because my life is, is very easy now. You know, like I'm, I'm not mega famous. I'm not mega rich, but I don't have to worry about where I'm going to sleep tonight or like where my food's coming from. And I don't have to worry about my, my future. Like I know I'm going to be all right. And I, I don't know how to write songs like I did on that first album without that. Well, I think you're hitting on something that is at the essence of what it means to be an artist. I think, um, you know, experiencing that struggle is is oftentimes the the motivation to write that great art, to express and reconcile the issues that you're feeling and you're having. So when you say that, I, it makes a lot of sense to me, actually. And so, so you wrote, I know you were talking, you mentioned the song Fire, that those are the lyrics to the song Fire. Is that the song that you wrote that really changed everything for you? Was it that one song or was it, was that? I, it was, it was that one song that just like flipped everything on its head. And like, I was this like a nobody kid, you know? And there was this guy, this super annoying guy that had been like following me around since I was in Dive Villa Dive. I met him in the parking lot of the NME Awards and he didn't even go to the awards. He was like walking around the parking lot with a stack of business cards as like a 16-year-old kid, like trying to poach artists like for his management. And he like, I took one to be polite and like told him my name. And like the next morning, he was FaceTiming me on Facebook, like with his shirt off. Like, hey, bud. Yeah, yeah. Good, good talk last night. I'm like, who the fuck are you? Why, why are you contacting me? You know, this like 16-year-old kid. I was like in my early 20s. Um, and he just never left me alone. Like he was always on my ass all the time. Like, Hey, you got new tracks? You got tracks? Send me tracks. What you got? What you got? And eventually, you know, like after about three years of struggling, my buddy Moses DeSantos, who is this like larger than life, uh, bass player, he, he got me a shot with this producer friend of his. So I, you know, I, I went through the drill. I went and met this producer guy in the Ace Hotel in Shoreditch. And, you know, he was kind of just doing it as a favor to Moses. He wasn't really interested in me and i played him fire in the bar of the hotel which was again super awkward but i played it for him and he's like okay yeah i think i got something a live version of fire I played him alive just on my acoustic guitar that's all i had gotcha. so we made uh we made the song the verse sounded pretty good but the chorus sucks and he was like yeah man you need to rewrite that i'm out you know you're not signed or anything you don't have anything going for you got no social media nothing like i'm done went in with his buddy um who was like a session drummer redid the whole song had the opposite problem the verse wasn't really working the chorus was like sounding really good but they were two bpm apart and they were both done and i didn't have the project files i just had the mp3 and i just remember going into starbucks with my laptop on GarageBand and like incrementally nudging the song for about seven, seven or eight hours like trying to make these two versions that were two bpm apart sound good with the mashup of like the good verse and the good chorus together. And I eventually like cut some feedback off of the end of the track and like layered it 
and crossfaded it over the transition from the verse to the chorus to like disguise the sudden tempo shift that was like just a rip job. And it, and it kind of confused my ear and kind of sounded like it worked. So I had this demo and I sent it to this annoying kid that like wouldn't leave me alone. It was like calling me on Facebook all the time and like had been doing it for years. And he, I mean, he, you know, he just like autistically, I think he's on the spectrum a little bit, which is actually a superpower for a lot of people that I know, played it to everybody that would listen. Like every party that we would be at, I'd see him like annoying the fuck out of everyone in the party. Like, hey, listen to this this artist. Like, yeah, this is my guy. Listen to this artist. Like, check this out. Like, you know, sending it to everybody. And eventually he sent it to a music agent for X-Ray touring. And the agent was like, this is sick. I'm going to send it to my buddy who was working in a record label who sent it to his buddy and his buddy and his buddy. And I didn't realize at the time, but the music industry is super small. And suddenly I had every major label in the city calling this kid being like, who's, who's that fire guy. Wow. And then he called me up and was like, dude, like something's, something's happening here. So, you know, I signed uh, management because of this kid. He wasn't your manager. He was, he was like my main manager in conjunction with professional management. And, you know, I signed a record deal and I think, you know, suddenly this kid who was, I think he was like 19 when he signed me and I was like fucking 24, <laughs> you know, and he, he was 19 and he'd signed me. He got a lawyer to get me out of my Island records contract pro bono, like super kid. And the success was just like too much for him to handle. And suddenly he had like a serious cocaine addiction. He was coming to meetings with the record label, like vomiting into his hands in the meeting, like running to the bathroom, doing a line on the toilet, coming back all like jumped up, like <laughs> coming into publishing meetings. And like Holy crap. when I was trying to get signed to a publisher, like ordering three orders of lobster and like the best wine and pissing off everybody. Whoa. You know, he was just like totally <laughs> into the stratosphere of ego. And I had to make a really tough call that I probably left way too long to, to let him go. And I, I hope he would tell you that that was good for him and turned his life around because he's, you know, he's doing really well now. He's, he's got his own management business, but, but I don't know. So yeah. But anyway, to, to get back to the, the story. So, so yeah, this, this fire track was in the industry and it was like, bam, management, record label. And then suddenly this movie with Bradley Cooper burnt picked up the song and it was like, bam, songs in the movie, songs in the trailer for the movie. This is before the record deal. I think I just, I've literally been signed like a week and this happened. So it's like, bam, 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 all these things happened. And then suddenly my A&R who signed me to Virgin left and every single act that he signed was systematically dropped. Oh, so you were dropped as Barnes Courtney as well as a solo act. I thought I was going to be, but I wasn't. It was me and the Libertines left. And the reason I wasn't dropped is because I got this sink for burnt. And when I got the sink for burnt, a couple of other things came in, like not a bunch, but enough that I was generating money before my record was out. And they were like, you know what? This kid's making us money, like whatever. Just put him on the back burner. Like nobody has to deal with him or anything. Just let him stay on the roster because he's bringing in cash. And it, I mean, it was looking kind of shaky, but the song was in a trailer and the trailer was playing on TV in America. And this radio dj at kndd in seattle john manley heard the trailer and was like Who, what's that song googled it absolutely nothing came up because i didn't even have an instagram page figured out that i was signed to um virgin called up the label and was like hey you got this kid barnes courtney right and they're like let, let us look it up 
yeah, yeah, he's one of ours. Why? He's like, that song Fire, like, I love it. I want to play it at my station. So like, you know, suddenly, and, and this is super breaking protocol because radio stations, a lot of them, they have to go off analytics. Like you can't, you're risking your job to stick your neck out like that. And he was like, fuck it. I'm just going to play this guy. Started playing the shit out of my tunes on Seattle radio. And then it basically busted open the door for me because now it was getting real airplay on a real station and a good one. And then other cities started playing it. And then a few other cities. So suddenly, like, even though I was this like remnant of the guy who left the company that was almost dropped, stuff was happening. And uh, people had to start doing something about it. So I signed to Capitol Records as like my American affiliate. And Capitol Records just got all over it. Sick. You know, like a rash, like super, super hard. My guy, Gary Gorman from the record label and Allison Smith, who's left now, like my guardian angels, those two, you know, like just working their butts off for me to like uh, try and make things happen. Bless them. I love them. They would set up huge events uh, for different radio stations, like parties where it would be all Barnes Courtney themed and stay up half the night laboriously putting on barnes courtney stickers onto like a thousand whiskey bottles you know and like going out shopping and finding like huge letters that spell barnes courtney and going out to vintage stores and buying barrels that, you know to set up these like interesting events for uh different radio station djs and so yeah i mean to summarize i went from like working shitty jobs selling cigarettes lipton's iced tea like selling computers to being on the road in america supporting l king with a song on the radio it was, it was nuts. Wow, that, that is quite a story. But this was unfolding. What was going through your head? I was somehow more depressed <laughs> than I was before because... Really? I, I remember being in Virgin Records with a bottle of champagne in one hand and the pen in the other, signing my name on the dotted line. And my management saying to me after the, the meeting, I've never seen you so quiet. You know, we went out to dinner with everybody. We had a huge dinner celebration for the signing. Like, I was just dead quiet because I was so traumatized from my last experience where I thought, and everybody told me I was going to be like this superstar and I believed them, that it, it triggered this fear response where I was like, what if it all gets taken away from me again? Like, I was almost ready to wake up on an operating table and realize the whole thing had been a dream. Wow. I was just waiting for the rug to get pulled out from under me again to have that same experience. I basically had PTSD. <laughs> and obviously it's nothing compared to what people who risk their lives for their countries go through. But I had a sort of entertainer's version <laughs> of PTSD. And it just like completely overwhelmed me. So even though all this stuff was happening, I was like, I was so depressed that I could barely talk. I was like suffocated by it. I felt like I was drowning. And just to like, keep my head above water and function like a normal human was taking all of my energy. So I couldn't even speak. Um, and, and it was weird. And so did something happen that, that brought you out of that funk? I mean, obviously, fire went on to really to do something. And as far as I understand, was kind of the catalyst for, you know, your beginning of your successful journey. At what moment did things kind of shift for you? Well, it was, it was very gradual. I mean, I, dude, I was, I was acting like a fucking crazy person. I was taking screenshots of my Spotify plays every day in case something went wrong and they all disappeared. And I had to send an email to the people at Spotify being like, oh, well, here are my plays. Like, this is where they were at. Like, I, <laughs> wow. I, was, I was nuts. Like, just so 
ready for everything just to disappear. And, and I think it, it took about two years of me being all right for me to relax and realize, okay, you know, relieve all my muscle tension and just be like, okay, it's all right. Like it was the terror of being homeless and jobless and like not knowing if I was going to be able to support myself. Yeah, that's that. That is an insane journey. So at this at this time, you're getting through all this. You're you're you know learning a lot about yourself. You're you're afraid that you're going to lose it all. Were you just touring this whole time while this was happening? Just touring nonstop. I mean, like every single day. And it was good because the interviews with the radio stations felt like part of the performance. And performing is catharsis, and performing is my home. So luckily, this immense like depression didn't manage to filter in and I could be engaging and entertaining in the interviews and in the performances. And that was all good. But behind the scenes, you know, I was, I was a mess. So was there a particular moment you remember where you, you, you finally felt like, okay, I'm all right. Honestly, there was no like moment. It was just very gradual, you know, like very great. And st- I mean, still to this day, I still have inklings of it. I mean, like, I remember when my second album came out and, uh, and I released my single you and I, and it, it was the first single I released that didn't make the top 20, you know, and the previous single had made like like top five at all. And you and I like was just barely scraping the bottom of the twenties. And and that for me was like really stressful because I somewhere in my subconscious believed that if I didn't always kill it, that it would all get taken away. And that was a big moment for me to sort of like have this relative failure and be like, okay, I'm still here. Like I haven't been dropped. Like I'm okay. And, you know, like the second album came out and uh, the first album didn't really get proper advertising or a proper run because of the situation I just explained. Like it was all kind of a messy campaign. I, sh- I kind of almost got dropped. And the second album was the first album that really had like a proper plan behind it. And then it didn't blow up. And that was like a big turning point for me because I was like, okay, the album didn't blow up. Like it didn't do incredible things and I haven't been dropped. I'm still here. Like... Like I'm okay. It's 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 all right. But he, I mean, even now, you know, I'm I'm still I'm still on edge. In fact, it's scarier for me now than it has been at any other point in my career because, like, I, I'm just when I'm really depressed and messed up, I just get songs in my head, just like bam, 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 bam. When I'm happy, like because I'm more of a performer than I am a musician. You know, if I'm not letting out emotions, if I'm not letting something go, I'm not just sitting around fucking around with a guitar. <laughs> you know, like wow, that 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 is crazy to hear, man. Well, one thing I notice about you that I find so impressive, I think I toured with you like maybe three years ago at this point, and you just seem to have a relentless work ethic. Like you're, I think you've been on the road that in, the entire time from then till now. Is that out of a personal choice? Is that pressure from the label? I think I just always wanted it so bad that I would do whatever it takes to get there. And as somebody with ADD who finds it really difficult to focus um, when I'm by myself, I recognized an opportunity where like, I had structure and somebody telling me, okay, now you gotta be here, now you gotta be there. And I was like, I can do that all day. I've never been able to apply myself in school or like by myself in a home studio or even with somebody else in the studio because it's like, I get distracted by like a butterfly, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But like here in this environment, this is the one place where I know that I can outwork everybody else and my mind and my attention deficit disorder isn't going to get in the way. 
So I was just like, sweet. I'm just going to say yes to literally everything. And it was great. I mean, dude, you know, we would play a show in California and then like, you know, have three days to drive to um, Portland, Maine on the other side of the country (laughs) and like have to not sleep and just go. And then as soon as I got out, of the van and be like straight into a radio interview, straight into a gig. Um, and I loved it because I felt like, okay, I'm doing everything I possibly can. Like that, th- nobody can work harder than this. I'm, if I fuck up, it's just cause I don't have what it takes. I'm, I'm doing everything. Um, but even that, you know, wasn't enough. It's, it's hard, ain't it? You know, like, cause touring isn't everything. It's not just about the touring. It's about, like writing a lot of records and I, I wasn't writing any records on the road. Right. And also like, you know, breaking an artist through touring is quite an old way of doing it too. People got the internet now. It's not such an important thing. So it, it got tough. I mean, I love performing so much that it took me four years and six months to get bored of it. <laughs> but, but after four years and six months of that, you must be pining for the road now. I am. And I'm not because like, before I go back out there, I really want a record like a new record that I believe in to go and, and push out there. So until I've got that, I kind of like, I don't want to go back out. So with that, I'd like to segue into kind of a, a, a new part of this discussion, which is what is it you hope to achieve? Like, you know, you're, if you've, you've done it, you're, you know, you're 80 years old, you're 90 years old, you're looking back. What is it you, you wish you said, you know, I did this, like I did everything I wanted to do. What is that for you? I mean, my, my philosophy is that this is all a game and that games are fun when you play to win. And it's not so much about the winning, although that is nice. It's about playing the game and seeing how high you can get that score racked up. So I want it as big as I can possibly get it. You know, I want like to be playing to 10,000 people a night and be flying around in the jets. Like I I just want to see how big I can take it. And then at the peak of my musical powers, I would love to then transition into acting and see if I can get into that industry. And well, how big can I make that? Interesting. I mean, it's not so much, I don't really crave fame or respects or notoriety. It's the, it's playing the game and it's the adventures that come as a result of success. Because I've had relative success as a musician, I get to spend most of my time hanging out in a van with my best friends going all over the United States and Europe, meeting different people, going on different nights out. Um, that is a huge part of the attraction as well. The more success you have, the more adventures that you are, you're opened up to. And I've always loved the idea of living like the characters in my storybooks when I was a kid. You know, I want to see the whole world and go and do all the things and have all the experiences. And uh, like Lord Henry says in a picture of Dorian Gray, live, live the glorious life that's inside you. Be always searching for new sensations. Let nothing be lost upon you. So it's about the adventure for you. You know, it's not necessarily about, there's no ending point. There's no, you know, you play the pyramid stage at Glastonbury and all of a sudden you feel like you've accomplished it. There's just a never-ending journey for you. It's about the feeling that I'm living my life to the fullest. Uh, I, I really believe that like, the, the world never asked anything of us other than to find food and a place to sleep. My purpose here is just to have a good time. And whether that's true or not, that's what I've dedicated myself to. I just, I just want to enjoy my time here in this sweaty meat puppet with as many different people as possible. And like, it's just a big, it's just like a big playground. Like imagine if 
our souls were all sort of floating about in the ether. And they're like, hey, let's go be humans for a little bit on this planet <laughs> Earth. And like, let's go play in that playground over there. That looks fun. And then we get here and like all the people that were here already have like forgotten and got into this feedback loop <laughs> that's been set up by the previous souls where they think they're supposed to work really hard and like accomplish lots of shit. And it's like, no, this is just a giant jungle gym, you idiot. <laughs> just, just have some fun. <laughs> That does shed some perspective and, and, and makes you think differently for sure. This is a fleeting life we, we do live. I don't know if that's true, you know, but it's just like that is, that is my philosophy. That's what I'm trying to do. Well, I think that's, that, that actually is an important thing. I think, you know, it's nice to know that you're doing this all because you love it. And I think that obviously is what it takes. So I'm curious to know if you had to like give advice to your former self or to like another aspiring musician, what would you say? I mean, me specifically, I'd probably be like, dude, if you want to be an actor, then you got to get on that shit right now. Because every you want to do in life is about momentum. So if you want to be an astronaut, you, you better start now as a seven-year-old kid, for instance. You better start right now. Go buy some, like, uh, some model rocket ships and start putting them together. Go like, get a book about the solar system. Watch a movie about some space travelers you know get your tiny little pebble of a snowball and start rolling that shit forward because you need that to be sizable by the time you get to an age where you're 18 19 20 and you can actually go out in the real world and do something every move you make matters um and i think at the age of 15 i was like oh yeah i'll do this music thing for a bit and then i'll just pop over into into acting but it doesn't work like that for for most people unless you're very lucky or very talented you have a lot more power as a very, very young person than you realize to start shaping your life and start rolling that snowball. Huh. That's profound stuff, man. I think, uh, I wish I would have heard that advice too. I think that that's super relevant for me personally. You definitely at some point in your career are going to be an actor, which is awesome. I'm definitely going to see you in some films. I'm in. The thing that keeps me going is, is my belief. And Tony Robbins says it best where he says people drastically overestimate what they can accomplish in a year, but they drastically over, uh, underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 years. You know, I, I believe if, if I put everything that I've got into learning how to act and auditioning and doing shitty local plays or, you know, amateur films, if I do that for a decade, there's no way that I'm coming out on the other side without some serious acting chops, whether I've got natural ability or not. Like, you, you just can't put a whole decade of your life into something on that level and not see the results. It's just simple cause and effect. Well, what I do notice about your story, and I think it is remarkable and worth noting, is that you have a willingness to persist and to stay the course. And I think not everyone has that ability. That's hard to do, you know, to, to stick it out for a decade. From what I understand of your story, you've told me, you spent at least seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years to get where you are now. And a lot of people do not have the stomach for that. And that is truly remarkable and impressive. I love this guy. Uh, what's his name? I can't remember. But he says, how is none of your business? The important thing, the difficult thing is to hold the vision, to see that guy playing on the stages, signed to a major record label, doing his thing, making it living, playing on Conan, no matter what's happening outside 
inside and hold on to it. Because if you can hold on to the vision, then you can consistently work towards it. If you got that pin put in the map, it doesn't matter how far away the destination is. You can keep flying your plane in that direction. And, and the problem that a lot of people have is that they, they focus too much on what is and not enough on where they are trying to get to. You know, um, it's true what they say. It, it, energy flows where attention goes, or attention goes where energy flows. I mean, whatever. Um, it, it really is true. And not a single person from my music course that I took when I was like 17 years old stuck with their dreams to be in a band. Every single person quit. And the one guy that didn't sort of decided to go into making video game music instead, but they all wanted to be rock stars. They, they all quit. Like, of course they didn't make it. They quit. You can't, you can't quit. And, and that, that's another thing I'd say to aspiring musicians. I'd be like, dude, if you want something bad enough, you can, you can get it. Like, this, this is just math. It's, the formula is not difficult. Like, yes, there are people like Billie Eilish with mega talent. But if you delve into her interviews, those kids were working their butts off from a super young age. Her brother believed strongly in the 10,000-hour rule. Their parents had a rule where they weren't allowed to send their kids to bed if they were working on music, which was pretty much all the time. So, you know, these kids were homeschooled. They probably spent like the vast majority of their childhood just like grinding and grinding and grinding. Maybe like they're not that different for you and me, apart from where they decided to put their time. So, you know, I'd say to young people like, dude, just just decide what you want to do and then just start putting in the hours because if you roll the dice enough times eventually you win that is just mathematics wow that is inspiring as hell man really thank you for that that gave me that gave me the juice and i can only imagine what it'll do for others so thank you for that little impassioned anecdote which leads me to an interesting question i always ask my guests how much of your success do you attribute to luck and how much do you attribute it to just hard work you could argue that it's all luck but you're going into the casino and you have unlimited throws of the dice. You can keep throwing the dice as many times as you want until you die, <laughs> you know? Like, so yeah, it's, it's luck. But if you're in that casino every single day from when it opens to when it closes throwing dice, like you're gonna win. And you know, you might, you might get better at throwing dice as well and like figure out how to toss them in such a way that they land on the, the numbers you want more times. You know, I've never thought about it that way. That's awesome. That, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stash that in the back of my mind. That's, that's serious stuff. Somebody said to me, it's like, oh, it's all very well, like people like you or Taylor Swift saying, if you keep trying, you'll get it. Because like, great, you know, you're a talented person. Life has taught that to like, of course, that's what you say. But like, it's not bullshit. It's, it's, it's real. This stuff is very real. Like, I wish I could show you the video of my first gig and how much it sucked so you could understand like how I am just like everybody else. And the only difference is that I didn't quit. I, I think that that's the, a huge lesson. Persisting and putting in the time is, is the most important thing, definitely, in my experience. And then the missing ingredient is, is belief in yourself. You know, this, this uh, speaker that I've been listening to recently, you know, you can be, you can have a hundred power horsepower, 
100, 100 horsepower engine and you can be slamming the pedal to the metal and you know like using every ounce of strength you got but you got the handbrake on if you don't believe in yourself you know <laughs> like, like you got you could be doing everything right he says but if you got the handbrake on if you don't believe in yourself then then it's not going to go anywhere um you know <laughs> he's really funny i wish i could remember his name he's like you take the handbrake off and you go Choo! <laughs> <laughs> that's inspiring stuff man i think that's true it's like, it's, I don't know. There are so many examples in which that applies, but just one, for instance, is if, if you go into uh, a gig or a record label meeting and you're just like an amazing songwriter, but you have internalized the idea that you suck, how many people you think you're going to convince when you play that song live? It might be like, you know, Seven Nation Army, but if you're still there like, I'm going to fight them off. Seven <laughs> Nobody's... <laughs> nobody's going home being like that song's amazing yeah you you need you need really strong belief that you can do it and then it, that is is the skill that has to be built up that's the most important thing is is that self-discipline every day to visualize what it is that you want and then apply effort with belief that you can get it arnold schwarzenegger talks about this he was like you know i used to work out five hours a day in the gym and i'd be doing these insane amount of reps and all the guys around me had really sour faces and i'm in there with the biggest grin on my face smiling you know like the biggest and everyone's like why are you so happy like you, you've been in here for hours you're clearly exhausted and he said it's because i knew that every single rep that i did was one tiny step closer to my goal of being mr universe I could see it clearly in my mind, he said. I could see it. I could see it so clearly. And I knew that every single pump of that weight was taking me one step closer to my goal. Wow. That's good stuff, man. So what's next for you? I need to, I need to fight this exact battle in my mind. You know, I've been putting 100% of my effort into doing this for five years. And, you know, I've been focusing too much on where it's not working. The, the battle for me next is to try and hold on to that vision like i just said to an insane extent because you can't work as hard as you need to if you don't believe in yourself so you know it's, it's al album three i gotta figure out how to write an album when i'm comfortable with the same conviction as i wrote my first album when i was very uncomfortable that's the challenge wow that's profound stuff so but you just released an EP was that uh, a was that a planned thing or a quarantine activity? No, it's totally unplanned. Um, it was uh, just a bunch of songs and like parts of songs that have been bouncing around in my head for years that I never had the time to put together, and they never fit with any album. So, you know, I was just uh, just waiting for the moment when I could actually release something, and then lockdown hit, and I had nothing to do, so I just put them all together, and bam! I love that. I love the title track. I, rem I remember hearing it on tour. Uh, I like that part where it's like, in the windy city, called it home. <laughs> yeah, I changed it to uh, to big city because I didn't like the way that windy like bounced off of that phrase. Yeah, that's a tune, man. But yeah, I forgot about that. It was about Chicago, that part. From talking to you, I think you really underestimate your own power of will and how rare it is, your talent and your drive, and to have those things combined. It's impressive stuff, man. Seriously, it's inspiring. Well, my, my power of will uh, is equal to the level of success that I've gained. You know, that's why you see people like Will Smith or Arnold Schwarzenegger as like world famous stars killing it because their power of will 
is of that level. Wow. I never thought about it like that. That's really interesting, actually. Well, dude, I really appreciate you giving us your insights and taking the time to chat with me. I know you're a super busy guy, but that was a really inspiring story you've got there. And even knowing you and you know, seeing you out on the road, I learned a lot about you and the way you think. And that's super cool, man. So I really appreciate you. Well, man, ditto. I mean, you, you guys and your band, when you were still together, the dynamic uh, that you had between each other and the way that you intertwined your different instruments together into the dynamics of your show was such an eye-opener for me. Because as somebody who hasn't studied guitar, I just write the basic block chords and the bass is always the root notes. So the shows, I had to rely on other tricks to get the crowd going, you know, on crowd participation. Whereas your sets always felt like just musically, they were lifting you up and up and up and giving so much ebb and flow. That was the first time I really thought like, wow, there's so much more to be done in terms of uh, exciting a crowd just with the musicianship alone. Wow, dude. Well, that's super inspiring to hear. Thanks for saying that. No, I mean it. I appreciate that. I hope that one day soon we'll get to do it again. It'd be an honor for me. So You're always welcome to come on tour. You know, always, always, always. We had a great time. We'll do it again. Yes. Yes, man. Thank you so much, Barnes. You're the best. And I'll see you soon. Dude, thanks so much for having me on. You've just listened to an episode of my podcast, People Say. Thanks for tuning in and look out for more episodes soon.